In my first one-on-one, and maybe it had been my second one-on-one with President Whitten, once I got there and looked at the absolute, complete, total lack of diversity with respect to lawyers doing significant amounts of work for Indiana University, I said to the president, I'm really unhappy with the lack of diversity of lawyers, outside lawyers, that are doing work for Indiana University. And she said to me, then change it. You have the ability to change it. That was Anthony Prather, Vice President and General Counsel of Indiana University, talking about how transparency, authenticity, and courage are key to any successful corporate DEI initiative in Indiana. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. So, Anthony, welcome to the Freedom Forum, and thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before we get started, will you please tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other factors that led to you becoming the Vice President and General Counsel of Indiana University? Absolutely. But first, feel free to call me Tony. Okay, okay. So, I'm uh, Indianapolis born and bred, Uh, spent all of my life here in Indianapolis, other than the seven years that I spent in Bloomington as an undergrad and law student. Proud graduate of Pike High School. Mm. Got my undergraduate degree and my law degree from Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. And uh, I've spent, as I said, uh, all of my life here. The Before I uh, became the vice president and general counsel at Indiana University, I was a partner at Barnes and Thornburg. Prior to that, I had roles here in Indianapolis as a deputy prosecutor in Marion County. I was a, uh, an attorney with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I was in-house with Ameritech and with Bridgestone Firestone. So I, I have a pretty uh, diverse legal background. You know, one of the things I, I want to share that led to, to me becoming the vice president and general counsel at Indiana University is President Pamela Whitten. When I first got the call uh, to see if I was interested in this position, my first thought was I knew that there was a new president at Indiana University, and I knew that it was a, a woman. And because I was a graduate and three of my kids graduated from there, I was aware of her at the 30,000-foot level. I didn't know a lot about her. And so after I got off the call and I said to my wife, I got this call about this position at Indiana University, her first question to me was, why would you do that? And I had no answer for her. And I said, that's a fair question because I don't really know the answer to that question. I got the call. Let's talk in 24 hours, and you can either give thumbs up or thumbs down with respect to whether or not I pursue the opportunity. So that afternoon, the first thing I did was I Googled Pam Whitten, and I was able to read that uh, she was a blogger. And so in her role as president, I think she'd been in the role maybe eight months at the time. She had a monthly blog, or I should say a regular blog. I'm not really sure if it was monthly or not. But she had a regular blog that she had been writing as the president of Indiana University. And I read all of them. There were a couple of things that were common themes across all of the blogs. And the first was how important student success was to her. The second one was diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then the third was her expectation and her goal uh, to, to, to really make Indiana University more impactful to the citizens of the state of Indiana. And I thought, mm, man, that's pretty interesting because that's not like the presidents uh, that were there when I was a student. And it sure didn't seem to be the same as the presidents that were there when my kids were, were students there. 
So I said, well, let me Google uh, about, see what I can find out about her before she came to Indiana University because she was at Kennesaw State down in Georgia. 75% of what I read was over-the-top positive. The rest of it was over-the-top negative, but a lot of the negative was all about the fact that she, the significant changes that she had made. And it hit me, wait a minute, these aren't negatives. These are really positives. And, and, it, and it hit me, uh, man, this might be an interesting opportunity. I wasn't looking to leave Barnes and Thornburg. And so, again, this sort of hit me cold. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking this could be a really interesting opportunity to go back to an institution that I know and love, that three of my kids attended and graduated from, to work for a president who came there to do really different and significant things. And so when I went back to my wife and I was telling her about what I had figured out, she said to me, time out. I haven't heard you be this enthusiastic about talking about the practice of law in 10 years. She said, go for it. And she said, what's the worst thing that can happen? You don't get the job and you're still a partner at Barnes and Thornburg. So she said, so you playing with house money. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really funny for anybody that knows my wife, Marty, because she's not a gambler. So how she came up with that phrase, I don't really know. (laughs) And so that that was a, a really critical factor for me the fact that it was an opportunity to go work for this president. Mm -hmm. And what I will tell you, I've been there 18 months now, and she's been everything that I thought she would be to a multiple of 10. Mm. So I am uh, so uh, blessed uh, to be able to go back to my alma mater, uh, to be able to be a part of an administration and working for a president who is so focused on how do we make students more successful? How do we make education more affordable? What are the things that we can do to push the agenda so that people in the state of Indiana can live better lives? And how do we do that? Focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, making sure everybody gets invited to be at the table. And of course, I know you from our time together at private practice. You're my former partner in labor and employment at Barnes, as you mentioned. You were our firm's general counsel, I seem to recall, and, and dealt and dealt with that job quite well for many years. And so you were at the firm well before I was there and had a wonderful career there. And so what I'd like to ask you is, you know, what do you believe are one or some of the greatest lessons you learned in private legal practice? And how did it prepare you to be successful in your current role as the chief legal officer at Indiana University? I think, you know, one of the critical things that, and I already knew it, but my time at the firm just reaffirmed it on a regular basis, and that was accountability. You're accountable for the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's right. And you need to own the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then take the opportunity to learn from the good, the bad, and the ugly so that you can just be better. And so one of the things that the firm really helped me, and I think it was in large part because of where I was in my career, being at the firm really allowed me to, to every day, Uh, uh, go into that office with the mindset, how do I become a better version of myself today? Mm. And at the end of the day, if I didn't feel like I was a better version of myself, then I had to ask myself why 
What do I need to do to make sure I don't repeat that the next day? Lifelong learning, it seems to be a recurrent theme for lawyers, yeah. right? You have to be comfortable and enthused about learning because you are truly learning your whole career. Yes. I, I really appreciate that as esteemed and respected and, and as much longevity you had had at the firm, you were still pushing yourself to continue to learn. There's so many of us who get real comfortable, right, at whatever position we are and want to consider ourselves experts and that we're beyond learning. And I think that is not just applicable to the legal field, but any any career and any opportunity. Right. And, you know, and, and, and the interesting thing for me is because I was so focused because the firm, uh, you know, helped me to be so focused on every day, becoming a better version of myself. That has really helped me in my role as the vice president and general counsel at Indiana University. I came from the firm. I didn't come from a background of higher education. Right, right. And when I, uh, in fact, when, I meet, when I'm at meetings with my Big Ten general counsel peers, I'm the only person that didn't come from within a, a higher education uh, background into the role of a vice president and general counsel. And so literally my uh, uh, need, my desire, and my goal to get better every day has only been amped up because every day I'm focused on how I can become a better vice president and general counsel for Indiana University in this world of higher education uh, that I'm new, that I'm, you know, 18 months into being exposed to. So let's talk about that. You've you've mentioned a couple times that you've been now in your current role as GC at IU for a, a year and a half, 18 months. In that time, what are you most proud of and what have you learned? You're talking about learning. So what have you learned? What are some of the big lessons you've learned and what are some accomplishments that you can take ownership of in that year and a half? I, I think uh, for me, uh, the biggest accomplishment was the week within the first week of me starting. I met with President Whitten and she said, hey, we've been talking to Purdue about doing some really significant things on the IUPUI campus. In fact, we're talking about the possibility of breaking up IUPUI as it's been known for 50 plus years and setting up two uh, separate institutions, Indiana University and Purdue University, with the expectation that breaking up the institution will allow these two individual institutions to really grow and flourish. Yeah. And I need you in your role as general counsel to be the lead on the team uh, that will handle that particular project. And I can remember walking out of her office thinking, oh, my goodness, <laughs> I don't even I'm not even I don't even think I had a, a parking spot at the time. And, and I've got this really significant uh, assignment. And so 15 months later and 15 months of working with a, a very well-respected colleague of mine, Steve Schultz, who's the general counsel at uh, Purdue, he and I and our teams of lawyers were able to, in 15 months, really uh, get into the weeds and, and, and over a 15-month period, do all of the legal work necessary to, uh, we have call it the definitive agreement, but to put together the definitive agreement that laid the foundation uh, for the breakup of IUPUI and for the formation of Indiana University, Indianapolis, and Purdue University in Indianapolis. Uh, that absolutely has been my most uh, unbelievable one that I'm really uh, absolutely proud of, of, uh, of getting that done. 
but part of going back to so you know so what did I learn from that? What I learned from that is the one, and I don't know that I learned it. It just reaffirmed it for me, and I saw it in a different uh, from a different perspective. One is the uh, uh, the importance of of, of, strong, of a strong leader. Uh, President Whitten uh, was absolutely at the forefront of of, of the decision, uh, along with the uh, former uh, Purdue uh, President Mitch Daniels. They were the two who had the vision to sit down and say that this needed to be done. And I don't want anybody to think that that 15 months was a stroll in the park. It was not. There were ups, there were downs, there were pauses, there were starts. There were times where I didn't think that we were going to do it. There were times that I thought we were going to walk away from it. But it was her leadership and her ability to always keep us focused on the end goal and the ultimate benefit to students of us getting this done that really helped me and my team and Steve and his team get to the to the to our mutually uh, important goal of of getting this thing a, a across the the finish line so that was the, the, that strong leadership and the other thing is the importance of being a part of a really good team i am really fortunate because as i said you know i come to this role with no experience in higher education the other members of the president's cabinet and the cabinet are the people that report directly to her all, uh, I think pretty much all of uh, them, except for maybe one other person, have really longstanding backgrounds in higher education. And the way that my cabinet members have sort of embraced me and done all that they can do to ensure that they help me with the learning curve as it relates to higher education and, and the way that they have, and they've never said it, but I feel it all the time, how they're so invested in me being successful in this role. Yeah, I got a lot of kudos when this thing got pushed across the uh, finish line, but I wouldn't have gotten there without the leadership of the president and the support of my peers in the cabinet. I mean, you said so many things that really resonate with me, but I think the most, in addition to strong leadership, because every organization, team, department, et cetera, has to have strong leadership, is also that investment. I yeah. really appreciate, because we talk a lot on this show about how, you know, diverse talent, any talent needs their supervisors, their mentors, their peers to invest in their success. It doesn't just happen you know, in isolation, it requires all hands on deck to kind of transfer that knowledge, right? The background, what you've known over the last 15 years. And oftentimes, you know, I hear so often, particularly from diverse people, how they feel like their peers or their supervisor are kind of hiding the ball. They're not transferring that knowledge such that they feel like they're being invested in and made a part of the team such that everyone can be successful. So that's huge. I mean, President Whitten, uh, and she's never come out and said it, but it's in her actions. I absolutely feel on a regular basis that she is absolutely vested in my success. That's awesome. Invested in making sure not only that I'm successful, but that I feel like I belong 
a part of the team. And I would expect, as it works with most people, when you feel that, right, when you feel like you're valued, when you feel like you're an important part of the team, that just doubles down on your desire to do excellent work for that organization, for that leader, for that, your peers and colleagues. Absolutely. Uh, and now this is figure of speech. I would run through a wall for her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's that invested in me and I am that invested in being the best general counsel that I can be in order to help her and my team members, members of the cabinet, really focus on the mission of the university and how we get there and how we how we impact the students and how we make change. I'm I'm all in. I love that. And I also appreciate, and we'll talk about this a little more, that even at your level, with all your seniority, with all your background, with all your knowledge, you are still in a position to A, take on new challenges and have a new team, a new leader invest in your success and appreciate how important that really is to you being successful, right? Absolutely. I think that's so powerful because, as I mentioned, we'll talk about this a little more, but we often talk about these things in the context of younger leaders, emerging leaders, people who are new to career. But the reality is that applies throughout your career journey. I agree 100 yeah. percent. And I'm and I'm living it and I'm benefiting from it. So I know it's real. So so you probably understand better than most, given your background and your experiences about the challenges and opportunities that exist to increase diverse representation in the legal ranks in private practice and large law firms, as well as in-house. And you've been in both. You've now had the, uh, you previously at Barnes had the outside counsel experience, and now you had the in-house counsel experience, and you had had that even previously. So what role do you believe in-house counsel, general counsels, GC, and or the business professionals play in ensuring that their outside counsel law firms or even third-party vendors and suppliers have actionable and accountable measures or metrics to increase diversity at all levels of their ranks and that progress is continually being made? They're critically important. And, And when I say they, I'm referring to general counsel and senior leadership. Not so much in-house counsel because they are typically, you know, again, working at the directive of the general counsel. But real change only occurs when the people at the top recognize that there's a reason to do it. And in an ideal world, they would recognize that the reason to do it is because it's the right thing to do. But in the reality of the situation, they sometimes get to that because they understand it's a business necessity. And one of the things that, from my perspective, those in that role must do is they must be willing to sit down and look that vendor or look that law firm in the eyes and say, you're not where I want you to be from a diversity perspective if you want to continue doing business with my company. I had that discussion with all of the major firms that were doing, that I inherited, that were doing work for Indiana University. And it wasn't a give and take discussion. It was me saying, there's a new sheriff in town and there are new rules and the rules that you played by before no longer matter. In fact, they're unacceptable. And if you're not willing to play by the new rules, which means that everybody gets an opportunity to do work for Indiana University, then we need to shift this discussion and talk about transferring files immediately. 
because there's no other option. And I was very comfortable in making uh, those statements. And uh, lawyers lost the opportunity to do work with Indiana University that had been doing work for a lot of years. And firms lost the opportunity to do work with Indiana University that had been doing work for a lot of years. There are new lawyers that are now doing work for Indiana University that are extremely qualified. And some of those new lawyers just happen to be diverse lawyers sure. that never even got invited to be at the table. Right. There are now firms that are doing work for Indiana University because they understood that if they wanted to do the work, they needed to do a better job of making sure the diverse lawyers within their firm got an opportunity to do the work. And so I make no bones about the fact that these are the rules. There's no hidden agenda. And you can either work with me and continue or get an opportunity to do work for Indiana University or not. Right. Because no lawyer or law firm is indispensable from my perspective. It seems to me that, um, you know, you have several general counsels that have that position and have made no bones about it. They are very direct in their expectations. They hold folks accountable. But it seems to me that there are still plenty of in-house counsels, GCs, et cetera, that haven't quite gotten there. DEI, making sure that their outside counsel representation is not as much of an issue as continuing to just make sure the work gets done and gets done well. So what are some of your thoughts? What would you offer? What advice would you offer? Again, in-house counsel or GCs or business executives in Indiana that have the power to make real and needed change in their respective organizations with regard to the diversity and representation of their potential outside counsel or law firms, or again, even third-party vendors, but just don't feel empowered to really do so or make those demands or make those requests. You obviously didn't have any challenges, but what about those folks who, you know, are still tasked with getting the work done and don't want the additional demands of making sure that their outside counsel has diverse representation to get in the way or be an excuse not to get the work done? So the first thing you have to do is you have to make sure that 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 your view is in line with the CEO or your board of directors, the ultimate person that, that, that you uh, report to. Because if it's not, if the, if the person that you report to doesn't feel the same way, right. you're not going to feel empowered. And there's nothing that I can do to advise someone who's in a situation where he or she has a CEO or board of directors that does not feel uh, the same way. Yeah. Other than, quite frankly, because, you know, me, I'm very real in my uh, my views. That's probably not the best. If, if, if you are intent on trying to make a difference with respect to the diversity, equity and inclusion opportunities. Right. And you work for a CEO or a board of directors that doesn't believe the same thing. You're either going to have to compromise your beliefs yep. or find another opportunity. Right. I was real fortunate in my first one on one. And maybe it had been my second one-on-one -on -one with President Witten. Once I got there and looked at the absolute, complete, total lack of diversity with respect to lawyers doing significant amounts of work for Indiana University, I said to the president, I'm really unhappy with the lack of diversity of lawyers, outside lawyers that are doing work for Indiana University. And she said to me, 
then change it. You have the ability to change it. We don't need to talk about what changes you want to make. Part of the reason I bought you here was because I knew that you have the confidence and comfort to make changes. Absolutely. So if you're not happy with your outside counsel, change it. And that's all I needed to hear. I, I know that's right. That's <laughs> That was the door opened. And, Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I was very aggressive in, 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 in my view. Uh, because I knew I was going against, you know, probably, you know, I don't know how many, surely not the whole 200 years, but for the vast majority, if not significant majority of the history, I'm pretty sure that outside counsel had not been told that you need to bring diverse lawyers to the table to do work for Indiana University. Yeah. So despite that 100 plus years, unless I will make it for simplicity purposes, say 100. So despite 100 years of nobody being tasked with this being important to them, I felt very comfortable after that meeting with her that I could absolutely immediately change the rules and immediately impact people both positively and negatively that were not willing to do what I had been empowered by the president to do. That's bold. Even with the green light from President Whitten to do it, to actually implement it. I've spoken with so many GCs and in-house attorneys who, you know, may feel empowered and are still a little squeamish about making those changes just because they don't want to shake everybody up. They don't want to, you know, and I think that is just so empowering that you went in straight away and now you're a year and a half later and everybody's on board and you're doing good work and you're making amazing things happen rather than waiting the year and a half just to get everybody comfortable with the fact that you're there to begin making those changes. So that's very powerful. And I hope that's a lesson for, you know, the GCs in the city who are running huge legal operations to feel empowered to make changes where they believe change needs to be made. I sure hope so. Uh, you know, you know, I spent 20 years at the firm and I was on the flip side of it. And I heard so many times from people and unfortunately at times people of color, man, I'd love to hire you, but I just can't afford to have you lose a case. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm not tooting my own horn, but I'm really good at what I do because I work, I work to the bone to yeah. be good at what I do. And for somebody to say to me, you're good, but because you're black and I'm black, and if you if you lose a case, that's going to negatively impact me, I would always think, well, how could you be any less impacted if the lawyer was white right. or anything else? Right. If, 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 if you lose. You lose. <laughs> so so, so to, 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 to justify not hiring me because you don't want to lose. But I heard that multiple times yeah. in the 20 years that I was at Barnes and Thornburg. And it was really frustrating. And at some point in time, I just understood uh, that sometimes even when uh, people of color get to a, a, a level of success, yeah. they still have a lot of the insecurities that, that uh, you know, that sometimes just keep them sort of uh, trying to be uh, on that straight and narrow path and look more like the people that don't look like them than not. Yeah. And I've been really blessed in my in my life, and I've had a lot of ups and downs because of it. I've been really comfortable in my skin, mm. and I will be comfortable in my skin until you know, to to, to whomever uh, puts me down or whatever happens. But because I'm really comfortable in my skin, I'm really comfortable with people that look like me, right? Right. And because I've been in my skin for all of my, I have 
and you're an example. I'm not saying it's just because we're talking. I have been blessed to meet some incredibly, incredibly smart women and lawyers of color that are incredibly, incredibly talented and not, and they're not getting their fair opportunity because of their gender or because of their race or because of their ethnicity. Mm. And because I suffered it, I know it's real. Yeah. And so I'm not going to step on the other side where I can now be the one handing out the candy and think that I'm not going to hand out candy to somebody that does that looks like me or somebody that's of a different gender to me. Everybody's going to get to eat as long as I'm the vice president and general counsel at Indiana University because anybody I invite to the table can absolutely do the work. Yeah, that's so powerful. And I think there are so many people who need to hear that. So thank you. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Anthony Prather, Vice President and General Counsel of Indiana University on the Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. So since the beginning of this podcast, you just talked about, you know, um, some very powerful and smart and intelligent women. And I've always focused on the issues that women and particularly diverse women face in our business community because it's known that diverse women face the most challenges in retention, promotion, advancement, acceptance, value, etc. But I've also asked quite a few of our diverse male guests, because these are not the shoes that I walk in, about the challenges that are specifically encountered as diverse men in the Indiana business community. So I'd like to ask you, what do you believe are some unique challenges faced by diverse men in business settings in Indiana and all across the country, whether in private practice, corporations, government, et cetera? And then what can employers do to address those issues so that diverse men also feel more included, more valued, and particularly accepted for advancement opportunities through the corporate business settings? I have known that I am perceived differently by uh, people that don't look like you and me going back to the sixth grade. And then the sixth grade is when I went from go from uh, fifth grade through fifth grade, IPS, almost all black. I don't ever remember being a, being a white student being in my class. Yeah. And then we moved. And so in the sixth grade, I went to Lincoln Middle School in Pike Township. And then all of a sudden, I went into an environment where Oh, wow. If we're like less than 10% of the people in the building yeah. look like me, right? And so it became very obvious to me at that very young age that there were people that were making assumptions about me simply because of seeing me, right? Right. And so over the years, you know, people have been uh, conditioned uh, by a number of factors to fear Black men, to minimize our importance, to question our competence, because if we're in the room, then they, oh, they're here because of affirmative action or some DEI program. Literally, Angela, I, there is rarely a day go by that I don't have to remind myself, don't give anybody the opportunity to call you that angry black man. I've never considered myself to be a big person because I grew up with guys that played basketball, you know, that were six, 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 seven, you know, I'm, I'm six, one. 
But to a lot of people, I am a bigger person. And so I have to consistently remind myself, don't give them an opportunity to be afraid of you. Don't give them an opportunity to categorize you as that angry Black man. Mm -hmm. Ironically, I met with a, a, a young brother earlier this morning. We had coffee. And he is an employee of the university, and we were just talking. He was just talking about interviewing and wanted to ask to meet with me. And I meet with anybody that asked to meet with me, right? And he wanted to just sort of talk to me about, you know, his experiences as a black man in a world where you know he rarely sees anybody that looks like him. And we talked about this very topic, and because he was, you know, about my same size, and I and I just said to him, you know, we have. That's a challenge that we that that we have that will always be there because you're going to always be black and yeah. you're going to always be basically the same size that you are. And so the reality of the situation is those are circumstances that you're blessed to not have to deal with. But you got but that that's not to minimize because you've got and, and women have an equal set. Sure. But those are the things that are unique to um, to, to black men. And, and to the second part of the question, you know, what can we do uh, with our employers to, to address these issues? I don't, I'm, you know, you know, and I'm a positive person. I don't believe there's anything an employer can do because you cannot change what's in people's hearts. Mm. You can't change who they really are. And if somebody has been a particular way for 40 years of their li adult life, them little eight hours a day that they spend is, is not enough for an employer to think he or she can change their hearts. Angela, I am the vice president and general counsel of Indiana University. I report directly to the president. I am... You know, All that in a bag uh, well, of chips. Not, <laughs> no. <laughs> I am very hot within the university administration. Yeah. And I will tell you that there is today... Today, when I am in my office here in Indianapolis, there is a white female who will not speak to me, despite the fact that I'm the vice president and general counsel. And guess what? She knows I'm the vice president and general counsel because she came to one of my presentations. Mm -hmm. I literally spoke to this woman when I first got there, and I'm like, I don't think she spoke. Mm -hmm. I always give people two times, right? And so the next time I saw her, and you know we were on the same floor, I was like almost all in her face to speak. And she looked at me and rolled her eyes and walked away. Ooh, and wow. I said to myself, that's all I need to know. Yeah. You've shown me who you You've are. You've shown me who you are. Yeah. And, you, know, food, you know, shame on me yeah, if it takes right. another opportunity. That's right? right. That's right. So despite the fact, and so to this day, and so, you know, here we are 18 months later, I see her in the hall. I don't mean mug her. I don't do it. She's just, she's just invisible to me, right? Mm-hmm. But this is a person who knows that I am the vice president and general counsel. My office is right across the hall from the president. And she, to this day, doesn't speak to me. And we've never, ever had any interaction. So I can only surmise right. that she got to not speaking to me simply because of the fact that I'm a black man. And, yeah. and you know what? In your role. In my, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because I'm going to always be black. And I'm going to always be a man until I leave that place. And if she can't deal with that, that's her problem. Yeah, yeah. That's so real. But that's the reality of the of the world that we as men of color deal with. Because you would expect, you would expect on that campus, me in this role, 
that even if people don't like black people, they will at least speak. Like, oh, I better speak because that's the general right, counsel. Right, right, right. Nah, she's so comfortable with her hatred right. of men of color right. that she can walk past the general counsel of Indiana University and not think twice about not think twice about it, not be concerned about it, not be. And, and that shows the amount and the level of disdain that many people of color and both genders, yeah. you know, at least she just shows you who you are. It's even more challenging when you are more of the female perspective. You're assumed to be the secretary or the admin or the whatever. So I appreciate you saying that. Because I particularly think black men often, A, don't talk about it, right? right. <laughs> That's just the thing. But I've known so many black men in so many high esteemed positions at Lilly, my supervisor, super brilliant man, ran a whole department. But he also would tell me about the bigotry he faced when he stepped outside of them walls when people had no idea who he was, right? And they just treated him like they would treat anyone. I, I really think it's important because as the vice president and general counsel in the role you're in at uh, institution that is so ingrained in Indiana life, yeah. like IU. I think it is so powerful for you, even today, to be able to say that I'm still experience that as we speak, because I really think, you know, non-diverse people think that so oftentimes, oh, it's it can't be about race. Everything can't be about race. And you're right. Everything can't be about race. But there's a lot of things yeah. <laughs> that are straight up about race, especially when you don't even know me. We've never had a conversation. What else could it be about? Because it's not like you didn't like the outfit I wore yesterday or you didn't like how I spoke to you. We didn't have a conversation. It's so real. And part of why I do this show is to communicate and to convey to people who simply just don't see Indiana from the vantage point that we do, which is wonderful. It's an awesome state. I've made home here. I'm not going anywhere. You're from here. I'm not from here. And this is home. But we still have issues to deal with. And race is one of them. Absolutely. And part of the reason I share that story, and I've shared that story multiple times, and I'll continue to share that story, is because I want uh, uh, men that look like me mm to be prepared yeah. for the understanding that irrespective of how hard you work, how much you accomplish, how high you get up that corporate ladder, you must be prepared that there are going to be people that are going to interact with you the way this woman interacted with me. Yeah. Again, irrespective of all of what you've done to get there. All the accomplishments. And you need to be, and, yeah. and I think that, that, that we as men need to be prepared for that so that we know how to handle it and know how to handle it in a way that we don't cause a problem for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, to your point, so that you don't react in a way that gives you the stigma of the angry yes. black man, right? That That's so powerful, and I really, really thank you for sharing that. So, you know, I mentioned, uh, Tony, you and I are a bit more senior than many of the emerging leaders that are currently entering or navigating their way through Indiana business environments. And I think most business professionals, whether whether diverse or not, can appreciate that we all get a bit more comfortable in our own skin, our own views, our own experiences. You mentioned, you know, I'm very comfortable in my own skin. 
It may be a negative for me, but I am clearly comfortable in my own skin. And as we get a bit more senior in life and position, that just comes with it. But still, I think it's always valuable to discuss authenticity and ways any business leader in Indiana can effectively convey their own authenticity in a way that solidifies their brand, their objectives, and their value for the organization. So can you describe your approach to authenticity in establishing an inclusive workplace culture and how necessary is empathy and or transparency in order to truly effectuate corporate DEI policies and advance real goals toward more representation, inclusion, fairness, and equity at all levels of an organization? Sure. Uh, So, you know, as it relates to an approach to authenticity, I don't have one. I'm just me. Yeah. But the me that I am is premised, is built on decades of knowing what it's like to feel invisible Mm. in the workplace, decades of knowing what it's like to speak and not be heard Mm. in the workplace, Uh, decades of being minimized because of who I am, Uh, decades of having to listen to people make racially insensitive jokes, sexually insensitive jokes, Mm -hmm. and think that it is okay to say them in front of me because I really don't matter to them. And so for me, it is, I got decades of being on the receiving end of, of, of that being invisible, being disrespected, being ignored, being trivialized. And because I have decades of that built in, it is natural within me. I don't want anybody to be in my in my, in, in, in my aura, anywhere around me, particularly as it relates to my office, whether it's in Indianapolis or in Bloomington, I don't want anybody that is in that office to feel invisible. Yeah. And so for me, it's just about being me because me sees everybody. Mm-hmm. Me hears everybody. And me, to me, everybody matters. So I don't have a, yeah. an approach. I'm, I'm just me. And I, I don't really think about it except for you asking the question. And, and, and as it relates to empathy and transparency are critically important uh, in the DEI space. But I'm going to tell you what I think is really more important because of where we are right now. Mm-hmm. And that's courage. Courage is critically important because DEI is being attacked. Yeah. You know, it's it's it, you know, it's become like, a you know, there's a certain politician down in, in, in the, the southeast part of this country. And, and, and he and others have been able to sort of um, uh, make DEI and make what well, you know they 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 said co-opted right these 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 terms and made them into really negative terms and so DEI is this boogeyman and one of the things that that was already happening before the Supreme Court's decision you know last month on affirmative action was that DEI was being attacked in higher ed, in corporate America. What that opinion did and will continue to do is embolden people to to even ratchet up even more their attacks on diversity, equity, and inclusion in higher ed and in corporate America. You're already seeing it. Lawsuits have been filed in the last month challenging corporate DEI efforts. And so to me, courage has now become the most important thing that that we in higher ed, we in corporate America need, because we need the courage to understand that as we continue to focus on the importance of DEI, that we're going to be attacked both from outside of the 
organization sure. and within the organization. Yeah, yeah. I don't have any misgivings about uh, the, the belief that while a, a large part of the university community uh, was really saddened by that Supreme Court decision, there's also folks within that institution that were happy Absolutely. about that decision. Yeah. So to me, yeah, uh, uh, the empathy part sort of goes back to what I was talking about before. You got to really put yourself in somebody else's shoes yeah. to, to, for this thing to really work. And then to the extent that you you are trying to do things, you just have to be transparent. People have to understand that you're coming from a good place. Yeah. I like that courage. I often talk about discomfort and how necessary discomfort is in DEI work because it does require you to kind of take yourself out of your comfort zone and and put yourself in a position that, you know, may not necessarily be uh familiar to you, but I really love the you focusing on courage because you're absolutely right. And in a day where, you know, you just get you know, beat down for what you say or what you can say or what you do say or what you don't say, what you stand for. It requires just living in your own skin and speaking your truth these days does require much more courage than it did even five years ago when that wasn't the perspective of most people or many people. I shouldn't say most people, but many people. It requires courage to speak out on these issues. It requires courage to be transparent about your lived experience. Being a super esteemed partner at one of the top 100 law firms in the country and still be exposed to racial jokes or sexual jokes or just insensitivities that people don't appreciate and being able to deal with that in a way that doesn't hurt your brand, if anything elevates your brand and continues to allow you to do good work. There are so many people, especially some of the younger leaders that I speak with, and I know you speak with on a regular basis, who can't get that out of their way in order to remain focused on the task at hand, on the job at hand, you know, yes, okay, that was inappropriate and that should be dealt with in its own proper time and place, but you can't let that get so much in your head where you're just completely out the game and can't perform and can't do what you need to do. That's when you show your value is in spite of this foolishness, I still, you know, brought in a new client or brought in a new book of business or whatever, you know, hit the goal, whatever that objective is. I think that's where you continue or can show value. And that takes courage and it takes strength yeah. to work through that. You know, it, uh, it, um, it's, it's all about not giving people who aren't entitled to, mm. to, 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 to be in your space. Yeah. It's about not giving them the power. Yeah. You know, and I hear the, the phrase and I've, I've heard it more for in sports, but it is so appropriate. You know, oh, such and such is living rent free mm -hmm. in somebody else's head. Yeah. Yeah. And the key is to minimize the amount of time that you let people live rent free in your head. Yeah. Because to the extent that somebody is living rent free in your head, they're keeping you from, from being the best 
version of you that you can be because you got part of you that's dealing with somebody that shouldn't even really matter to you. That's right. That's right. They're not even on your level. That's right. So so listen, we're we're talking about, you know, what it takes to be authentic and some of the emerging leaders. And I just recently had the opportunity to speak at the call to profession ceremony for new 1L students at my alma mater, uh, IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law here in Indianapolis. And after that ceremony, a young lady, one of the new 1L students, approached me and she indicated that she had been working with you at IU and that you had been a phenomenal mentor, that you had really prepared her to start her legal journey, that you had been so patient, that you had taught her and all these wonderful things about you. And of course, she made the connection because, of course, I mentioned that I was at Barnes. And I know you also to be that great legal mentor. I don't know if you know, but you were literally one of the first attorneys who ever encouraged me to pursue the career path of law. And you indicated to me, I'll never forget it, when I met you at Barnes, that, um, you know, Angela, you will have a lot less challenges than so many new lawyers because you've been a professional, you're a parent, you've got some of those things that many new lawyers have to learn on their legal learning curve. You've got some of those things down and you've got that under your belt. So I'd like to know what is your approach to mentorship, to sponsorship of emerging leaders and talented folks, particularly diverse talent, and how important is mentorship and sponsorship to the advancement and integration of diverse talent in any Indiana corporation, organization, or community? So, you know, I have to answer that question by first sharing that, um, uh, you know, I, I, you know, Every day I start my day, not every day, but 99 plus percent of the time, because every once in a while I'll forget and I do it at lunchtime. I start my day with a prayer mm. and I thank the Lord. I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful for waking up. I'm grateful uh, for the to see another day. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for the opportunity to sort of be the best version of myself I can be. And I'm grateful for the blessings and protections that he bestows on my family. That's my every day, right? Uh, I'm equally grateful for the people, and I can go back to when I was a kid. You know, I grew up just my mother, myself, and my sister. My father was not in my life. And I can go back to being a very young, impressionable boy, and there being uh, predominantly men at that time, African-American men whose, you know, I was friends with their sons, who sort of took me under their wings. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I can look back on... uh, you know, 50 plus years of so many people. And, mm-hmm. and I, I couldn't even begin to name the number of people that God has placed in my life uh, that have mentored me, that have sponsored me, that have pulled me aside and said, you're doing wrong mm-hmm. and you need to tighten it up or you're doing right and you need to keep doing that. And so I know that I would not be the vice president and general counsel, but for all of these men and women, yeah. there have been women that have mentored me also. I would not be in the role of vice president and general counsel. And so for me, it's all about, I got to give back to a multiple of 10 yeah. in deference and, and out of respect for those that that, that molded me. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, uh, mentorship and sponsorship, that's that's like breathing to me. It's, it's, mm-hmm. just, it's just a part of who I am, yeah. you know? It's 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 fun, it's a fundamental part of who I am and it will never and it will never change. And so for me, 
whether somebody's looking for a mentor, somebody's looking for a sponsor, somebody's just looking to be able to vent or just, you know, I'm going to make myself available. Like I said, I met with, with somebody today. And as I was talking to, to, to my wife about the meeting and, 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 uh, and the funny thing was, I didn't even remember him reaching out. So when she was saying, well, who is it? You know, I'm like, I don't even remember his name. Let me look at my phone because I know I had it in here because he reached out a month or so ago and, it, and I, it, I didn't need any details other than he's like, hey, I would just appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And yeah. so for me, it, 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 it is critically important uh, that, uh, that, that, that people like you and I, and I know you do the same thing, it's critically important. If we have any uh, desire for the greater good, uh, it's critically important for those of us, of us that have been blessed to get to where we are. Absolutely. To, to reach back and pull as many people uh, forward as you can. Sometimes you got to get behind them and push them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but the reality of the situation is uh, it, 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 it has to happen. Yeah, that's right. And, and I appreciate that because you're absolutely right. I know for myself, you know, there are so many people. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I couldn't even begin to name if I went all the way back to childhood, right? All the people who have seen something in me, pushed me, told me I need to apply for a program or you'd be qualified for this or whatever the case may be. And so it, it should be. And I think, you know, certainly with diverse folks and if we've attained any position of power or privilege, you should absolutely be giving back and mentoring. But even all the non-diverse folks, you know, part of what I just told the 1L class at McKinney is you have to be willing to learn from whoever is willing to teach you. And that means whoever. And and all, all the times that is not necessarily the right thing to do. You can just as easily learn what not to do, right? Um, but you have to be willing to learn from anyone. I've I've heard so many diverse folks say, well, there are no black people in my department, so I just don't have a mentor. Well, there's plenty of people who can be your mentor. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to be black. Now, certainly that's always helpful, right? If you have diverse folks, it will always, you know, be beneficial to have more diverse folks around. But that certainly doesn't equate to the opportunity you have to learn or to grow or to, to your point, be a better version of yourself every single day. And so I want people to, you know, think broadly about mentorship and sponsorship. It may not be the person who looks like you or you're familiar with or comes from the same school, which is all all metrics that many of us look to, you know, when we're looking for mentors, people who came from the same school as us, people who came from the same part of the country as us, you know, those kind of things. But that doesn't mean, you know, you can't learn from them. Oh, absolutely. You know, because the people that have blessed me have been diverse and non-diverse people. There absolutely. Have been, there have been non-diverse slash white people in my life who have been incredibly, incredibly helpful. I, you know, so I'm, I left Bridgestone Firestone. You know, you know that was the job I had before I went to Barnes and Thornburg. When I went to Bridgestone Firestone's commercial roofing division, I, I was the only you know this is almost I was the only person in senior management that, that was of color, right? And uh, uh, and I met a guy named George Furman, and George was like the this is roofing contractor business, right? And he was like the roofing expert, and I remember him saying to me. 
hey, I'm going to somewhere in Illinois. Why don't you go with me? We can go look at this roof and I'll just sort of, you know, educate you uh, on on roofing. Sure. Uh, and he was so instrumental because the part of being a good general counsel is understanding your client's business, sure, right? Sure. And George so much invested in me. I left Bridgestone Firestone 22 years ago. We still get together. Yeah. I mean, we are still friends. Yeah. He was so impactful in the success that I had on that job. And there was nothing about, we had nothing in common yeah. just on the surface. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's what, you know, I tell people all the time, that's what DNI is, the ability to get to know other people that otherwise you would never have the opportunity to get to know, get to know their traditions, their background, their foods, their beliefs, et cetera. For me, that makes life so rich, you know, that you have and are placed in opportunities to get to know so many different kinds of people. So I'm glad George was instrumental for you as you have been for so many of us. And so as, as we begin to come to a close and as you reflect on your career journey to to this point and all the challenges and successes that you've talked about that were required for you to be in your current position of influence. What have you learned during this phase of your career that you wish younger, diverse professionals and their corporate leadership or management or supervision would know and appreciate earlier in one's career development in order to avoid some of the unnecessary pitfalls or disappointments while they're being mentored and championed and positioned for success on their career journey? You know, for me, um, failure and the ability to recover from failure mm -hmm. are critical to long-term success. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want people, young people to understand. You know, early in my career, uh, I saw failure as a personal shortcoming on my part. And I was always very critical. You know, my wife will say, always says I'm, I'm my worst critic. Mm -hmm. And I admit that, and I have always been. But I always saw uh, the failure as, as, you know, I did something wrong. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time beating myself up based upon the perception that I did something wrong. Yeah. But at some point, it began to click for me that, no, no, failure and the ability to recover from failure, to look back and analyze why you failed mm -hmm. and to learn from that is really an opportunity to become better. Yeah. And so what I and, and so the last quarter probably of my career has been built on the understanding that every failure is simply an opportunity to, for a redo and to focus on becoming a better version of myself. Mm -hmm. And so if, if any young lawyer that is listening to this takes nothing else from what I said and what I've said this afternoon, I hope that they take that. That's very, very powerful. And I think particularly as lawyers, we all are very hard on ourselves. It's kind of built into our DNA. That's kind of, I think, uh, uh, goes with being that kind of type A personality, that go-getter. But I'm, I'm the same, and it is very challenging. So I think that is an awesome nugget, if for no one else, for me specifically. So thank you. And 
Final question, and it kind of goes back to what you just said as far as failure and being able to recover from failure and use it as a learning opportunity. What would be two or three other tips or tools or resources that you would suggest to any Indiana leader who's serious about recruiting, hiring, retaining, or advancing diverse talent within their ranks? What can we do better in Indiana leadership to make sure that our diverse talent our pipeline of diverse talent are able to survive and thrive here in Indiana? The first thing that steps, jumps out to me is, 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 is those in those positions need to step out of their comfort zone. Mm. What I mean by that, step out of a comfort zone where you only interact with people that look like you, that think like you, that you only really associate in the workplace with people that look like you or think like you or people that experience life similar to the way that you've experienced life. Mm -hmm. That's the critical first step because you will only see your diverse talent and give them an opportunity and give yourself an opportunity to value them if you get to know them. Mm -hmm. But that's a hard thing for for people to do. Yeah. And 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 so that to me is is probably the most important thing. The second thing and I have done this uh, in the multiple searches that we've done uh, over the last year and a half is you demand of those that bring applicants to your attention for a particular position, you demand that that applicant pool be diverse. Mm -hmm. You're not guaranteeing anybody a job because they're a diverse applicant, but you ought to demand of those that bring people before you that they bring a diverse pool of talent before you for you to consider. And then if you are really serious about it, invest in that talent. Invest your time, invest yeah. your talents in, in that person. I've been practicing law for 40 years, and the president of Indiana University is absolutely, at this stage of my practice, at this stage of my life, is investing the time, the energy, and the effort in my success. Yeah. And if the president of Indiana University can do that for me in my role as the vice president and general counsel, there's no excuse. That's right. There's no excuse for anybody to not, if you're really serious, there's no excuse to not model that behavior. Yeah. Tony, this has been so powerful. I've gotten to know so much more about you than I didn't know, but I think this will be very, very impactful. You were you so transparent, so forthcoming, and we just really appreciate you sharing your time, talents, and energy with us. Thank you for being on this 25th episode of the Freedom Forum. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for the invitation. It's always good to talk to you and to be able to talk to you in this forum with you doing what you're doing. I'm just honored to be here. Thank you again to Anthony Prather, and thanks to you for joining us on this 25th episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. Please come back next month for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the central Indiana business community.